The unfortunate truth is that the black community is being slammed by coronavirus right now. That's Trevor Noah, host of The Daily Show. So while almost every industry around the world is shut down, it looks like racism is still considered an essential service. Sometimes, especially when things seem really dark, comedians can put things in perspective. And yes, I know this is depressing, especially right now. I mean, you don't want to deal with coronavirus and racism at the same time. It's like two Marvel villains coming into one movie. We don't have enough heroes. I'm Tariq Moody, and this is By Every Measure. We are nearing the end of this podcast series, and we're talking about one of the most important things we have as people, our health. And this episode is coming out during a global pandemic. So it's so relevant now to be talking about health and healthcare. At publishing time, Wisconsin's seeing a huge spike in coronavirus cases. Made national headlines as number two state for new cases in the country. And across the nation, black people are more than three and a half times more likely to die of COVID-19 than white people. And that's according to a report from the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy. But the fact that these racial disparities popped up right away in the pandemic as early as March should be no surprise. In fact, at a press conference in 1966, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. stated, of all the forms of inequality, injustice in health is the most shocking and the most inhumane because it often results in physical death. On this episode, we're going to examine these disparities in depth. That's where we start with our co-host, Reggie Jackson. This is our final episode, Health, which is kind of an interesting way to end it because if you think about it, Policing, housing, education, the wealth gap, all plays a role in health. Bad housing, education, uh, the lack of um, resources in the schools, uh, racial wealth gap can cause stress and can't afford health care. Policing, dealing with like the stress of being pulled over and mental health issues, all of it leads down to this. And I like you shared a quote from MLK um, that I thought was cool on your article, the impact of racism is the other coronavirus crisis for people of color. And for me, this article is very personal in terms of my rationale for writing it. Um, And and it it goes back to a a story with my my aunt, uh, my my mother's youngest sister. Uh, Years ago, you know, she still lived back in my hometown in Mississippi and she got really, really sick. Um, and, you know, she went to see the same doctor that she's seen for years in my hometown of Mississippi. And he just kept telling her, you know, it's nothing serious. It's not that bad, blah, 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 all of this. Right. And of course, people trust their doctors. So she just kind of continued to deal with it. Uh, and, you know, she would tell my mother what was going on. My mother, you know, is a retired registered nurse. So my mother knows, you know, medical stuff like the back of her hand. She's like, no, this is something very serious. You, you, you need to tell the doctor that you think it's this, right? And, and so she did. And the doctors was like, no, no, your sister doesn't know what she's talking about. So finally, my mother got so frustrated. She, she literally caught a plane and she went down in Mississippi and she forced her sister to go with her to a hospital in Memphis, which is about 70 miles from my hometown. And she was able to see a, a doctor there. And immediately, based on the symptoms she had, the doctor was like, you have cancer. And you need to go see a specialist. So, you know, he, he referred her to a specialist and, and she started getting treatment. This was like two years in. She'd been dealing with these symptoms for two years. And her doctor just kept telling her, no, it's nothing serious, blah, blah, blah. And so had it not been for my mother going down there and forcing her to go see another doctor in Memphis uh, and then getting that special, you know, the, the, that specialized treatment to, to deal with the cancer, she probably would have died from it. So... You know, I know from from research I've done over a long period of time that black people, you know, we just know we don't get treated the same when we go to the doctor. Pain tolerance, thick skin. It's funny how comedians can really tell the truth through comedy. I think this really drives it home. There was a Wanda study. Sykes. There was a, it's racism. There was a study and it showed that doctors, they, they actually prescribe opioids frequently to white people than they do to black. They don't give us opioids because they're sympathetic. They're like, oh, this white person, they, they're in such pain. 
Here, let me give you this. Let me give you these opioids. Get that pain away. I had a double mastectomy. You know what they sent my black ass home with? Ibuprofen. It's sad that a comedian has to point this out. And there's proof to all of this. All you have to do is look at the numbers to see unconscious bias all through our healthcare system. You know, black people are, uh, are, I think, three and a half times more likely to lose a limb when they have diabetes than a white person is. Black women who go and have babies are almost four times more likely to die having a baby than a white woman is in this country. We have been used as guinea pigs in medical experiments going back hundreds of years in this country. So there's all of these factors that layer on top of each other and lead to us having conditions that people claim, which is just nonsensical to me, they claim that we're predisposed to have high blood pressure. That's nonsense. Listen, let me tell you why we're predisposed to having high, high blood pressure. It's because of racism. Because if you go to other countries where a majority of people are black, you go to places in the Caribbean, you go to West Africa, you don't find the same levels of hypertension that you mm -hmm. find among blacks that you do here. In, in many of these places, they eat the same types of stuff we eat. The difference is the level of stress from racism is completely different. I remember Richard Pryor talking about, you know, his first trip to Africa. He, he, he landed in Zimbabwe in, in an airplane, right? And he got off and, he, you know, he spent a couple of days there and he was like, man, he says, now I know what it feels like to be a white person. There's no stress. A lot of these disparities for black and brown people simply come down to access. Before the Affordable Care Act, a lot of black people didn't have a primary care doctor or even health insurance, which means they would go to the emergency room instead. And that's only when they were really, really sick. And guess what happens when you go to the emergency room? They're going to look at you like you're crazy. You're going to wait forever. They're going to look at you like you're crazy. You're going to get a bill that you can't believe how big the bill is, right? So guess what? You're going to be much less likely to go to that emergency room the next time you're sick or your child is sick or your husband is sick or your wife is sick or whoever. So you're going to develop this sense that like, man, I have to be like deathly ill before I go because, you know, I don't have a regular doctor. I got to go to the emergency room. The bill is going to be crazy. I'm just not going to do it unless I'm like critically ill. So over the course of time, what ends up happening, that connects kind of intersects with this idea of the distrust that's there. And, you know, another factor here in Milwaukee that people forget um, is that we had two hospitals that closed in Milwaukee. St. Michael's Hospital closed shortly after I moved back from, from California, the early 90s. St. Michael's Hospital closed. When do you ever hear of a hospital closing in a white neighborhood? Never, right? Another hospital that closed, Northwest General Hospital, right up on like 53rd, 54th in Capitol, closed. That's in a black neighborhood. And so what you end up having is you have, you know, people talk about food deserts. We have healthcare deserts. You have to go far and wide to find healthcare. And, and if it wasn't for, you know, programs that have been set up to provide, you know, uh, a level of care for poor people, uh, then a lot of black people for a long time didn't really have access to healthcare. And what ends up happening is you, you don't go and you get, you don't get preventive uh, medicine done, right? So you don't go and you see a doctor and get a physical every year. So your doctor doesn't recognize that you have some ailment that, you know, maybe pre-diabetes. Okay, let's get you on, you know, a new regimen, new diet, whatever exercise, so that your pre-diabetes doesn't turn into diabetes. Uh, you don't realize you have high blood pressure and you have to adjust, you know, your diet and things of that nature. You don't realize that you have, you know, a heart condition. You don't realize you have a lot of, so you don't realize you have, you know, uh, asthma. So a lot of things that people have that should be treated early on that could, you know, mitigate it getting worse for them, they don't get that prevent occur early on. They don't know that they're sick early on. And then there's this sense of like, man, I don't really trust the doctor. And I know my wife has been telling me I need to go, you know, because I've been having this pain in my side. And my wife has been telling me you need to go to the doctor, but I'm, you know, I'm not going to go. You know, I'll deal with it. I'll, I'll, you know, my daddy had the same thing and nothing happened to him, right? Those types of things happen. And so people end up being sick unnecessarily. And what happens is by the time they finally seek treatment, man, it's, it's too late. I can relate. I'm just like my dad. We're very stubborn. We don't really do a very good job taking care of the health. We wait to the last minute. And I don't know why that is. Maybe that is mistrust. 
I can definitely see what Reggie is talking about though. And on the other side of this mistrust is clinical trials. There's a lack of diversity in medical clinical trials. The president of my alma mater, Howard University, Dr. Wayne Frederick pointed this out in an op-ed in New York Times that we need to have more diversity in clinical trials. If you only test one demographic, usually a white man, you leave out possibilities of these vaccines or medicines not working specifically on black bodies, especially blacks with underlying medical conditions. Yeah, and that, that, that's across the board. That's been happening for so long in this country. Uh, most of the drugs that are on the market were tested on middle-class white males. Uh, it's very rare for people of color, particularly blacks, to be part of, of medical trials. One is they don't recruit blacks for it. You know, they say, well, we tried to get some black people. Oh, well, you know what? You weren't trying very hard because, man, it's, it's 40 million black people in the U.S. You can't tell me. You can't find people. But secondarily, uh, even even when, when, when they're trying, you know, the, 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 the drugs, right, to see the efficacy of the drugs, what they find is when black people were part of those uh, have complications, they're ignored. Like, well, you know, I don't know why it's, I don't know why you're having a problem with it. The rest of the subjects are not having any problem with it. Well, the rest of the subjects are white. I'm the only black dude. I'm having some issues, but you're going to ignore the fact that I have issues because none of the white people are having issues. And so you're going to just continue with the study and, oh, well, you know, it worked for 99% of the people that were in it. It worked. And you're not going to look at the fact that that 1% were all black folks. So, you know, there's a genetic basis for how medication works. And so what ends up happening, we get all of these medications that are developed, billions of dollars spent to develop medications, and people don't really care that it, it, it's not working with other groups of people because it works with the majority population. And that's all that really matters. I was reading a, a study that says that black doctors could reduce cardiovascular mortality gap between black and white patients by 19%. Do you believe that's the case, that another issue that would help, whether it's mental health, infant mortality rate, anything, is that we see more black medical professionals in the, in the industry? Absolutely. That's a critical factor. I mean, it's huge. You know, uh, most people don't even know that, um, you know, a majority of black doctors in this country for years all went to Meharry Medical School, right? That was really the only, only you know, credible medical school you could attend if you wanted to be a dentist or a doctor, you know, psychiatrist, whatever. You didn't have a lot of options. So we didn't have a whole large number of blacks who could get into the medical profession. But, you know, study after study have shown, and I can just say this from, from just my own personal perspective. I've had doctors. I've had white doctors. I've had black doctors. I've had some really, really excellent doctors. I've had some doctors that just, you know, they're in and out five minutes after they I come into the office. They ask me a few questions and then they're like, well, okay, well, here, I'm going to give you this. And you know, that's the end of it. But the, the two black doctors that I've had, two black male doctors, Tariq, when the first time I went and saw them, I literally spent an hour and a half just talking about my life and who I was with both of them. And I can say personally, I never had a black doctor at any level of healthcare. And just think about that, what you miss out on, not having a connection over shared experiences with your doctor. That helps build a trusting relationship over time and generations. These brothers asked me some deep questions. And as, as I was, you know, their patient over the course of time, I was their patient. They got to know me, right? They got to know me. And, oh, how's your wife doing? You know, how's your daughter? You know, they they get to know you as as a person, and you get that that level of care where it's like, man, I really trust this individual. So because I trust you, I'm going to tell you about that thing that I'm dealing with that I'm really kind of afraid to talk about. But because I trust you as my doctor, I'm going to tell you. Whereas if it's a white doctor who hasn't treated you in that same way, hasn't asked like, you know, how's your wife doing? How's your daughter doing? You know, how's that problem the last time you were here to see me? How is it, you know? If you don't have a doctor that asks those probing types of questions that doesn't get to know you as a human being, you're not going to share your most intimate secrets. And, and there's always going to be a higher level of trust, I think, when a black person sees a black doctor, because first of all, it's, it's pretty rare, right? And you're like, oh man, I got a black doctor. I saw a black doctor. I mean, you're going to leave... And, and you're going to go and tell somebody, man, I saw a black doctor today, right? Because it's like 
out of order. You never have a white person says, man, huh, can you believe it? I had a white doctor when I went to the hospital today. I, I mean, they never say that. But a black person like, man, I went to the emergency room. There was a black doctor that treated me. I mean, that's like exciting for us. So there's a different level of, of, of comfort. Brian, let's talk about uh, the now. COVID-19, coronavirus, it has affected black people more, actually three and a half times more likely to die from COVID-19 than white people. Mm-hmm. And uh, Latino people nearly twice as likely to die from the virus. And then black people seeking testing or treatment for COVID-19 were six times more likely to be turned away than whites. One, I want to say something first, that it feels like when this study, this report came out, that people took this COVID-19 less serious because, oh, this is this is a black disease kind of. This is my thoughts, right? This is not. Mm-hmm. But why? It feels like, you know, just like COVID did everything else in systemic racism, like peeled away that Band-Aid, showed the festering wound of racism, systemic racism. But why Why three and a half times more likely? What? What? What's going on here? Well, you know, I, I think there are a lot of factors involved uh, when it comes to the COVID Um the fact that the infection uh, rate is higher in the black community and the Latino community uh, in particular is because guess what? We are in the types of jobs much more uh, at a much higher rate than whites are the types of jobs that are going to put you in a position where you're going to be exposed to people who are walking around breathing on you. Right. So you're much more likely to work in a grocery store uh, that you're forced to go and work in these factories and places of that nature where you're much more likely to be exposed to this, this virus. So obviously you're going to be exposed to it at a higher rate. You're going to die at a much higher rate, right? When you look at nursing homes, you know, in, in the data about the nursing homes, we all know that, you know, the rate of people dying in nursing homes was significantly higher. But guess what? Who works in those nursing homes primarily? Guess who the CNAs are in most of the nursing homes in Milwaukee? Black people, black women in particular, right? And so what happens is the person who's working there may not necessarily get really ill with the COVID, but they're going to go home and their, their mama's going to get sick or their aunt or their grandmother is going to get sick. So when you look at COVID here in, in Milwaukee County, you know, I tracked the data from back on March 19th when the first person died of COVID in Milwaukee County. The first 16 people who died uh, in Milwaukee County were black. And so guess what happens? All of the conversation, all of the narrative about COVID was that, man, it's killing all these black people. It's, it's, it's devastating the black community. But guess what happened as I was tracking the data week to week? And I'm the only person that, that, that acknowledged this, Tariq, because I kept running into people that were talking about the narrative about black people, black people, black people, black people. And I was like, dude, the data is pointing in a different direction now. It's shifted. And after the first three weeks, the first three weeks, each of those weeks, majority of people in Milwaukee County who died from COVID were black, right? But after that, every week since then, a majority of people who have died from COVID in Milwaukee County have been white. And so there's been this big shift. I mean, a lot less people are dying from COVID, but it's shifted to being a much bigger issue for whites over the last however many months than it has been for blacks. In fact, I, I can pull up the numbers because I, I just posted this to Facebook last week. I want to I want to give you the raw numbers. So this is what happened in March. You had 17 blacks who died, two Hispanics and one white in Milwaukee County. In April, you had two Asians, 77 blacks, nine Hispanics, one multi-race person and 72 whites. So you already see the white people are already starting to catch up by that, by that second month, right? Reggie kept tracking the COVID data in our county month after month, and he kept finding the same thing. The last month I tracked August, uh, there were four blacks, one East Indian, five Hispanics, one multi-race person, and 16 whites. So this is what I've been trying to tell people since very early on as I was tracking, I saw the shift to more white people dying. I said, listen, the narrative has to change. If the data has changed, the narrative needs to change here locally. Now, this is Milwaukee County. Whites are 52% of the population of Milwaukee County. But still, when I talk to people about it, I think the impact of hearing the narrative is just about blacks and Hispanics. It, it makes white people relax. Like, oh, nobody's dying but a bunch of black people. 
and a bunch of Hispanic people. We don't have to worry about it. Why should I have to wear a mask? Why do I have to social distance? Why can't I go to the bar? You know, all these, because they're not hearing about any white people dying. And when I talk to white people, I hear this. Do you know anybody that's died from COVID? Yeah, I know five people that have died from COVID. Personally, five people I know personally have died from it. I've had over a dozen family members that have, that have gotten the virus, right? So I know people that have died, but a lot of white people are like, man, I don't know anybody that's died personally. Well, you know what? That's problematic because just because you don't know somebody that died doesn't mean people aren't dying. The only people I've heard say that COVID is a hoax are a bunch of white people. This is why I say to Tariq that until the people in, in our community here, Metro Milwaukee area, start to share with people the numbers that I shared about the shift from May through August at the, the, the majority of the people who died from coronavirus in Milwaukee County were white. If white people knew that, they would be like, man. I better start wearing a mask. I better stop yelling at people at the restaurant who tell me I need to put my mask on because it's just straight up ignorance. And, and, and ignorance isn't, isn't being dumb or stupid. And ignorance is a lack of information. And the fact that they're not getting the type of information, when I watch the local news, I read the newspaper, nobody is sharing this narrative that it's been a shift in where the COVID deaths are here locally. Going back to my observations, which basically you, you were justifying that once mainstream America, white America found out, hey, based off the data, I'm good. That basically white America says to me, they don't really value us at all in the first place. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. this whole podcast we've been talking about health, systemic racism, it's about valuing. And we have never really, as a people, been truly valued in any aspect of this country. And mm -hmm. that's what I saw what happened like people did start taking it seriously right in the beginning right when mm -hmm. we didn't have the numbers but people were like yeah i'm down i'm, I'm sticking in this out but then all of a sudden the numbers come out people are like i don't need to wear a mask because they like that's black people i don't need to care about that like mm -hmm. you're not valued in this country mm -hmm. and that's a very strong thing to say but that's what i felt that covid realized made me realize which caused me more anxiety that we're really not, no one really cares about our people. Yeah, you know, it, it's been clear in the way that people reacted to COVID that, you know, the numbers that, that show that Blacks and, and Latinos and Native Americans are much more likely to, to die from it. And, you know, it goes to what you said about how we value people. Uh, if, if we don't value people and then we can scapegoat them, oh, you know, that coronavirus is a Black and Brown problem. Look at them. They're the ones with the highest rates instead of us having empathy for people and saying, man, what, what is it that's wrong with our country that these people are getting exposed and, and dying at a higher rate? Uh, what can we do about that? There's no empathy. Um, and, and, you know, part of that goes to the fact that there's never really been a whole lot of empathy for black people in this country from whites. I mean, if people could sit around and, 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 and burn a person alive at a, at a spectacle lynching with 15,000 people there, what makes you think they're going to be empathetic when you have the coronavirus, you know, decades later? When they can, 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 you know, have the police department come out and spray you with water hoses that'll cut the bark off of a tree and do this to little teenage kids, what makes you think they're going to be empathetic now? So, you know, America has never had any empathy or real care or value for black people above and beyond the fact that they needed our labor. So they're not really that concerned. So I find it funny. People like use America for their own purpose. Like the black and brown people are American. So shouldn't this be an American problem? Yeah. But it's only an American problem when it affects them. Listen, Google all American boy and look for images. <laughs> and see what you see. You're not going to see any black and brown faces. All American boy. American only means white folks in the minds of a lot of people. Uh, you know, Captain America. Superman couldn't be a brother? Come on, <laughs> man. We, we know how this works. <laughs> so, you know, it's systemic racism in full effect, man. And it's unfortunate that it's, it's causing all of these issues for people, uh, life and death issues. So that's the problem. And coming up in the next part of this episode, we're looking at the answers to these healthcare disparities. Since we have been talking about institutions, we're actually looking at three of them. Government, the healthcare system itself, 
and education. We will talk to a panel of experts from the Milwaukee Health Department, freighted in the Medical College of Wisconsin, a postdoctoral fellow from MIT, and a fellow Howard University alum who are working on solutions. Next on By Every Measure. Radio Milwaukee is on a mission. And if you're here to discover new perspectives on music in Milwaukee, then you're on a mission too. Join today to support the programming you love. Visit RadioMilwaukee.org and click the orange heart. We're back on episode six of By Every Measure. This is our final episode of the series, at least for now. And since we're talking about healthcare, during a global pandemic, it makes sense to go a little deeper in the solutions section of this episode. We've got five experts joining us, representing three different institutions that intersect with healthcare equity. We will talk to two men of color who are working with MIT on an upcoming hackathon and throwing down an open call to the world to help come up with solutions for racism in healthcare. Then we'll talk to one of the state's largest healthcare providers, Freightert and the Medical College of Wisconsin, to learn about its own anti-racism efforts across its system. That's institution two, the healthcare system itself. But we're gonna start here in the public sector, institution number one, with the city of Milwaukee's health department. The department is in a period of transition right now. Its director, Dr. Jeanette Kowalik, recently announced her resignation citing racism within city government. We asked her for an interview, she declined, but pointed us instead to the department's chief of staff, Lillianne Payne, who joins us now. We start on the topic of bias. One of the things we talked about is bias in medicine and how black and brown people are kind of treated differently, yeah. systemically by medical professions, yep. by bias. You know, there's theories about, you know, still in some medical books, you know, as of like maybe 10 years ago, that black people's skin is thicker. Um, then we also talked about, you know, that outcomes of diseases and, and when, they, when a black person has a doctor that looks like them, um, improves. Mm -hmm. Does the city have a role in addressing those biases and dealing with hopefully enlisting, finding more medical professions, mental health, doctors, cardiologists that reflect the community? So when you think of public health, think of population health. When you think of healthcare and medical systems, think of um, just what you're talking about. Like, who are the frontline um, staff? Who's welcoming people into the hospital, who's welcoming people into a health clinic, who's welcoming people into urgent care. Um, the health department partners with health systems and can speak to the experience that um, patients may have within the healthcare system because they interface with some of the direct services we provide. Um, I believe the health commissioner has sat on many boards and is part of networks for local health officers that have that positional power to influence and inform health systems to um, reconsider their hiring practices and um, culture and climate when serving our residents, city residents. Speaking of the health commissioner, as you know, Kim Public Knowledge, she resigned due to some of the issues we're talking about right now, the racism. Um, how do you see the health department harness this moment to move towards solutions? Yeah, um, having the ability to implement our anti-racism plan, having the ability to um, work with our another thing that came out of the reorg and another credit to the commissioners, um, the Board of Health. So a solution is working with our Board of Health to promote and advocate the needs for the health department, um, as well as, again, our, our residents of the city. Um, they are appointed by the mayor and they have two-year terms and they just um, elected their new president and vice president after being around for a year. So that's a space um, and those are power brokers, I would say, that can help um, co-create solutions and advocate on behalf of the health department. The nine-member Board of Health was reestablished by Dr. Kowalik in 2019, and its mission is 
to advise the department on priorities, taking stances on public health policy issues, and being champions for public health in Milwaukee. In addition to the Board of Health, Lillian also mentioned another interesting effort, the city's doula program. We have Birth Outcomes Made Better, the bomb doula program that's targeting specifically black infant mortality and, and mortality, maternal mortality. With everything going virtual this summer, um, our program manager, Nicole Miles, has done a great job of remaining engaged. Um, she created a bomb doula book club um, for the breastfeeding month. She has done a great job with onboarding our doulas and uh, participating with national initiatives like the Hear Her campaign. The official launch will happen in a couple of weeks. Bomb Doula is one solution being developed in Milwaukee, a solution to a heartbreaking crisis, infant and maternal mortality. Wisconsin continues to rank as the worst state in the country in terms of birth outcomes for black women. According to the CDC, black babies in Wisconsin are nearly three times more likely to die than white babies. And then look at the maternal mortality rate for black women. It is five times higher than white women, according to a story in the Journal Sentinel. And clearly, the city can't fight our state's dismal infant and maternal mortality rates alone. Next, we're looking at the provider side, the healthcare system itself. Join us now, our reps from Freighted Hospital and Medical College of Wisconsin, to talk about those mortality rates. This is Sherry Tron, Director of Diversity and Inclusion uh, at Freighted and Medical College of Wisconsin. I've um, been there for eight years. And Heidi Moore, Director of Emerging Markets and Inclusion. And I focus primarily on the external stuff. Milwaukee has been, you know, as far as rankings and indicators when it comes to specifically the black community, it's not very good. Matter of fact, it's been like last place in a lot of indicators. And one of those is like maternal mortality rate and infant mortality rate. How is Freighters tackling that in Milwaukee? So when you, you have something like, um, you know, the two health conditions, that you mentioned when it comes to maternal health, um, when it comes to the birth of our children. What was interesting for me, because I've been doing uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion work for over 20 years across different industries and sectors. So coming into healthcare six years ago, one of the things that really stood out for me was this concept called social determinants of health, and also the concept that health disparities, regardless of income, for certain um, ethnic and racial groups you see the same kind of outcomes, and that absolutely is true for Black and African-American mothers. So regardless of how much money, um, you know, and, and, you know, I went to school, I've got some degrees, and, you know, and I'm making a decent income, right? Regardless of that, because of racism, and, and you know, and I'm not a doctor, but I have some thoughts as to why that might be the case, we still are seeing the same income or outcomes, health outcomes, as if, someone who maybe is living behind, uh, below the poverty level. So it, it is really significant, and that's why we have to address things like unconscious bias to address the type of care that everyone is receiving. Yeah, and on top of that, it's like we're, we're tracking everything, right? We're looking at all of our outcomes by various demographics so we can get a better understanding of what is the outcome, you know, because data is, is what's going to help us change things, right? We need to have the data to show us this, tell us the story so we can put in, in, interventions in place to overcome some of those disparities, right? So when it comes to really having hard data, like what is the outcome for African-American women who are giving birth in our organization, like at, at, our, at our hospitals, and how can we track and identify what are some of those causes, what, what can we do to support organizations in the community that are addressing those things? Because as Heidi mentioned, social determinants of health um, happen beyond the walls of a healthcare organization, right? Like only 20% of what a healthcare organization can do impacts the health of an individual. A lot of the rest of it is environmental, social, all those are economic, all of those things. So how can we help support those other areas that, that, that also impact a person's health outcomes um, without being directly involved, but supporting those organizations that do. So that's like part of what Heidi, a lot of what Heidi does is creating those partnerships and those relationships with organizations that help us achieve our mission for health equity. The other issue Reggie brought up 
um, kind of leads into the mistrust is that there's data saying that if uh, a, a black patient has a black doctor, the outcomes of their health would be much better. Talk to me about that. Absolutely. Yeah. That's called concordance, right? Like patient uh, physician concordance when there's that similarity, that familiarity um, from a, a, a point of diversity uh, definitely increases, you know, the trust that helps, you know, if a patient identifies with their physician, they're more likely to share information that's relevant to their health. They'll, they'll be more honest about what's happening in their lifestyle or what they're doing uh, to uphold their health. It, it, it creates a better relationship that creates better communication. It's all about that communication. Um, so for us, of course, education um, and recruitment of our staff is a key priority for us as well. Um, we have a program right now that's going to pay people and pay for the education of staff members who want to become search techs in organization, right? So not only do they get a free education at MATC, they get paid for it at the same time. So it's helping create that pathway for folks to get into um, direct care positions and advance in the organization and more programs like that are in development in our organization right now. Also partnerships with, with you know, HBCUs and, and medical institutions that um, help us to recruit physicians uh, as well. African-American physicians, minority physicians, LGBT physicians, LGBTQ population, um, because we have a growing population of patients as well that we want to make sure that we are um, meeting their needs, addressing their concerns, and creating that relationship and that trust as well. You can read more about Freighter's plan to end racism, both inside and outside of its walls, on a dedicated page on its website. You can find it at freighter.com slash end racism. It outlines a four-point approach, including reducing bias, employment career development, health equity, and supplier diversity. We'll put a link to it in our discussion guide. That brings us to the third system that's attacking systemic racism in health, higher education. I read about this effort at MIT on LinkedIn, and it really piqued my interest. MIT is hosting an event called Hacking Racism in Healthcare. In collaboration with Black Tech Matters, MIT COVID-19 Challenge, and MIT Hacking Medicine. And on a long shot, I decided to reach out to a couple of the organizers, Dr. Freddie Wynn. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at MIT, and I'm a uh, resident physician at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. Uh, for the last few years, I've been part of a group called MIT Hacking Medicine at MIT, which has done a lot of healthcare hackathons over the years. Um, recently launched the MIT COVID-19 Challenge about six months ago. And Yusef Enriquez. Co-founder and CEO of CodeClear, Ventures, which is a uh, biotech company that's developing uh, rapid uh, detection tests for COVID. Um, previously, I started another company that focuses on mental health around genomics, which is called True Genomics, uh, that I started three years ago. Uh, prior background as uh, military, uh, special force medic, and uh, worked in the government for quite some years. Where did this idea of hacking racism come from? You know, I used to run hackathons for my program, Indiana and I Labs, and people were like, what are, you, why are you, why, what are you hacking? What are you trying to steal from me? So talk to me, was a hackathon, and talk to me, uh, before we get into the, the, the hacking racism, explain hackathons, and then talk about when you, you're hacking healthcare, like that program. You know, hackathons and hacking for us, really, as you said, it's not about breaking into uh, some high-tech system or stealing code or anything like that. It's really about a creative use of ingenuity and trying to bring a lot of creative ideas and people together as part of, of our hackathons. And really what's remarkable is that the hackathon model has been able to transcend all of the barriers that you normally think of, whether it's social or cultural or language or whatnot. And so one of the things is we don't allow preformed teams. We don't want um, preformed ideas at the beginning of the hackathon. Really, everybody comes in and at the same level. Um, it doesn't matter what your day job was or what your title was or how old you are or how young you are um, or where your background is. It's really about the richness of the ideas and letting the best ideas rise to the top. So what kind of problems, uh, structural systemic problems in healthcare are you trying to tackle with this, this hackathon? 
So one of the areas, I mean, again, which has been huge in my area is, is around research. I worked for FDA and I started to see the huge disparity and the, you know, the involvement of African-Americans and minorities in clinical trials. And you've touched on a little bit of, you know, the history that goes back there. Granted, I wasn't here. I'm a, I'm, I'm a transient foreigner that came in, but understood and learned real quick about the mistrust um, that African-Americans have. Uh, we're now at a point where if we're not involved, the future of medicine is, is going to be at a detriment. So you, you, you piqued my interest and in, in you're talking about clinical trials because I've been reading a lot of stuff in my feed. Uh, I think it was Howard University. They're trying to get more African-Americans into trials because I remember watching, I think it was John Oliver did a whole thing on medical bias talking about people, they're developing vaccines and medicines, but the only people testing those are usually white men and they, they don't know the effects on women or, or blacks or, or Hispanics. How do you tackle that? Like, since this seems that's your, your specialty, right? Yeah. Well, man, look, you know, it, it's going to take a village, <laughs> as they normally say, right? Look, and, you know, but, and maybe it's because I'm military. I like to charge the, the, the highest and steepest hills. <laughs> um, so I'm taking on this large challenge just because I've been in it and I've seen the data set. You know, again, 95% of trials are European white males. Um, that's been over the last 40, 50 years. So, I mean, again, you can think about any particular drug that's come out on the market over the last 40, 50 years has been predominantly that subpopulation. And I think it's time for a change. And so what, uh, like Freddie mentioned, the COVID situation kind of brought up those health disparities, right? It exposed it. People were sitting at home watching. Uh, why is that not the case? Why do you mean, where are all the black people at? Where are all the brown people at? <laughs> I mean, they're all at home, right? Um, so, you know, to Freddie's point, that's why we focused on all those different track areas because it all ties in. Who's going to be involved in this? You mentioned mentors, influencers. Who can take part in this hackathon? Is it a national thing? Or is it a MIT thing? Talk to me. How does somebody, is it, can somebody from Milwaukee get involved? And in, so I'm assuming you can probably do more of these, right? Yeah. So it's, we're really hoping to engage um, anyone and everyone, essentially. Anyone who's had experience with this space who, uh, or who wants to make a difference in this space. And so, Really, I think that's the diversity that we always seek for. You know, I talked about diversity of expertise, but then there's also diversity and personal experiences that also will will be helpful as part of this process. And so uh, we are focused mostly on individuals from the United States. This isn't going to be as a global hackathon the way most of our others have been in the most recent uh, months with COVID. Um, and again, really targeting the population that's been, you know, had direct experience with these issues is really who we're trying to identify and target as part of the participant pool and the mentor pool and the judges and partners that are involved as well, because we realize that it's, you know, it's one thing to want to make a difference, but the other is if you don't have that firsthand knowledge of what that issue is, it's a lot harder. And we really need to get the people who experience the problem firsthand to be there as part of this hackathon. After the hackathon, the top teens will get connected to the resources they need to make their solutions a reality. They will have access to mentorship tailored to the solution they develop, plus prototyping facilities and eventually capital, according to Dr. Wynn. It's kind of a little bit of, you know, playing matchmaking between both sides of the people who have the resources to provide and those who need them. So here are some of the solutions we discussed in this episode of By Every Measure. One, developing anti-racism programs in healthcare that tackles bias. More representation in healthcare. That means increasing the number of black doctors, which help build trust. Investing in programs like Bomb Doula to reduce the infant and maternal mortality rates. And finally, most importantly, we need collaboration between the healthcare industry, government, education, and the community. Bring them all together to tackle these issues. Well, Reggie, I have to say thank you. This is the final episode. It was a great journey. I knew, I knew, I thought I knew a lot. I knew now I know a whole lot more. Man, Tariq, you know, I have to thank you for the opportunity. It is, it's been a pleasure for me to have this forum to share these things that I talk to people about quite a bit. It's been an emotional journey. Um, there's days where I just get angry and upset and just just 
I get depressed hearing these stories, right? Mm-hmm. But I think it had to be done because I think a lot of people, I truly believe a lot of people really understand systemic racism. You know, I think a lot of people, when we talk about race, I feel like a lot of white people feel like it's a personal attack, right? And then it gets very self-defensive and say, you're racist, Reggie. You're racist, Tariq. And we're sitting there like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think doing this kind of podcast, doing these kind of conversations, like truly trying to understand the history and having a conversation and then talking to people about possible solutions of what people are working on is a good foundation to start. And hopefully people will see that. And maybe, as you say, I'm not worried about the people who just, you know, wearing the Confederate flags who already, you know, I'm worried about the people on the fence. And this is for the people on the fence. One of the hard things about this is, and I say this to people all the time, man, listen, the truth hurts. Uh, what ends up happening for white people in this country? And, and you know, they, they, they think that we're blaming them as an individual. No, we're not blaming you as an individual. It's not about you. You know, that's part of the arrogance of, of, of people that think that, you know, uh, it's about them. Listen, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about this system that exists that was here before you came and will be here after you're gone. It's not about you. Don't take it personal. Just understand that what we're trying to do is we're trying to, to just use American history as a tool to show you what America has done. And you can't deny it. I mean, you can deny it, but oh, come on. Listen, denying is not going to 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 make you feel better saying, well, no, America has always been the land of freedom and justice and liberty, and everybody's at the same opportunity. You know that's a lie. They know the systemic racism happens because they see it way more than we do. They are the ones that are in the office when, when Tariq goes for the interview and doesn't get the job and doesn't know why, and then when Tariq leaves, the boss goes over them and says, man, I'm glad we didn't have to hire that black dude. They hear these things. They know. They can't hide from it. They know, they hear the, 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 the remarks that their peers and their family members and neighbors and stuff make. They know more about systemic racism than we'll ever know, but they don't want to admit it. Because guess what? It flies in the face of everything that they've been led to believe about their country, everything that they still believe about their country, because they want America to be this myth- mythological place, you know, this, this utopia. It's never been a utopia for, for people of color. Never has been, never will be. And the only way it can even approach being something close to that is when white people start to actually put their foot down and do some real work in this area. And it's not easy work. And, you know, I, I, I wrote a piece where I said, you know, I'm glad a lot of more white people are woke. But being woke is one thing. Are you going to get your behind out of the bed now that you're woke? Because that's when the rubber hits the road. That's when the real work needs to be done. And I think providing people with the information that we provided, you know, in this podcast, I think is, is a really good first step for a lot of people. Now they can have different conversations. But ultimately, I think that white people have to understand this very clearly about systemic racism. It hurts everybody. Mm-hmm. People of color more, but it hurts everybody. Because ultimately, think about all of the human potential that's wasted by us not taking advantage of people of color. Think about all of the black doctors and all the black engineers and astronauts and scientists that we could have if we were to cultivate young black children in the way that we cultivate young white children. Think about all the, the, the people from the Latinx community who are super talented, super bright, super motivated, entrepreneurial spirit that could be doing so much better and helping all of us if we were to cultivate that in that community. Same thing in Native American community. If we wouldn't have treated Native Americans the way we did and put them on these crappy reservations where some of them don't have running water, we could have cultivated their culture, their community. Man, we would all be a healthier place. There's more than enough wealth to go around for everybody. Yep. White people have hoarded resources for so long that they think it's normal for them to have all the resources. And, and when we try to, to balance that, we try to balance the scales a little bit with stuff like affirmative action, then white people want to say, oh, that's reverse discrimination. No, it's leveling the playing field. It's been unlevel forever. What's wrong with leveling the playing field and giving people, and, and I wrote a piece and I said, you know, I think one of the greatest fears white people have is a level playing field. They saw what happened in baseball when black people started playing baseball. Look at the records in the baseball record book. I mean, Hank Aaron, this might be wrong. Hank Aaron got death threats. Yeah, death threats. Why? Because he was approaching Babe Ruth's home run record, right? 
I mean, so there is a level of, of discomfort that comes with this. But I think ultimately in the end, the only way we get past this is that America has to face up to what it is. Like the best way to describe our whole podcast, America is a body, right? And systemic racism is a bad heart. You know, and I said before, your leg's great, your back's great, your brain's great, everything about it, red about it, but that heart is bad. You neglect that heart. Systemic racism is a neglection of that heart. Heart gets worse. It gets harder to run up the stairs, right? You get chest pains. You get like high blood pressure, right? Then eventually you get a stroke and die because you didn't treat that one heart, which is systemic racism, and the whole country dies. And that's the best way, I think, the best way to kind of describe what systemic racism does to the country. It doesn't, helping one group to get a level playing field doesn't hurt you. It helps everybody, as you said. So thank you, Reggie. Yeah, you're welcome, Tariq. Once again, man, thank you for the opportunity. Appreciate it. And uh, look forward to continuing to work with you, man. You know, there's so much more we could talk about. And uh, I think this podcast is really a, a great public service, man. This, this is providing a lot of stuff that people need right now. So thank you for, for having me be a part of it. Appreciate it. I want to thank you for listening to By Every Measure. It really means a lot. And more importantly, I hope you learned something. Hope you learn a little more about our history in this country. And if you found this very interesting and you know somebody who uh, would like to listen to this, please share it uh, with your friends or family. And I usually sign off with this uh, when I'm on the air. But it really means a lot. It really represents what we did here on this podcast. What we discussed. Basically, stand for something or fall for anything. It's important that we learn all of our history. It's not, it's not meant to tear you down or make you feel bad, but to truly understand America's history so therefore we can be a better country for it. That we can learn from our mistakes and grow from our mistakes. If we don't learn from it, we're doomed to repeat it. I know that's cliche, but it's true. So thank you again for listening to By Every Measure. I'm Tariq Moody from 88.9 Radio Milwaukee. By Every Measure is hosted by Tariq Moody and Reggie Jackson, executive produced and edited by Nate Imig, with additional production support from 88.9 Program Director Jordan Lee, Marketing Director Sarah McClanahan, Marketing Coordinator Aaron Bagata, Web Editor Evan Retleski, Audio Producer Salam Fatayer, Executive Director Kevin Suker, Content Marketing Manager Amalinda Burrich, Community Engagement Manager Maddie Reardon, and Imaging Manager Kenny Perez. Handcrafted sonic inspiration from the License Lab, and our sincerest thanks to our members for making all Radio Milwaukee content possible. By Every Measure, an original podcast production of 88.9 Radio Milwaukee.